chapter 13 today. John chapter 13. We're going to go backtrack a little bit. Um, whatever reason, I, I thought we were going to journey through Easter together, and we were going to go through chapter 18 leading us to Easter Sunday, but the Lord would not let me um, finish up with John 13 for whatever reason. And every time I tried to go to the Garden of Gethsemane today to prepare a sermon to preach to you, the Lord sent me right back to John 13. So I don't know what he's got planned today, um, but he's got something special uh, for us. But John 13, I've titled our message today, The Table is Set. Uh, the Table is Set. And as we uh, continue this thought of Easter and, and this uh, title of Journey Through Easter, the whole point really of this uh, series is that we're, we're really traveling through uh, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And really, uh, because because Benny was in John 14 last week, and we were in John 13 the week before, and we're in John 13 now, we're, we're more like two hours of the 24 hours. So you're going to have to read uh, John 14 uh, through 18 or John 15 through 18 uh, this week of your own time. But uh, today marks Palm Sunday. Did you know that? Uh, it's Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal uh, entry. And, and what kind of blows my mind is that when I read through the Gospels, is that we get uh, very little when looking through the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Have you ever noticed that? You know, when, when you really read through Scripture, the first 30 years of Jesus' life, were, it was just fuzzy. And then we get quite a bit of information with the last three years of his life, but then we get pages upon pages of the four Gospels contributed towards the last 24 hours. Of Jesus's life. And you can't help but to get a sense when reading through uh, John 13 through 18 that time is just slowing down. Uh, that long winding road of, of all the Bible that has been leading to this moment. Uh, through these chapters, there's, uh, there's a lot of action going on. Uh, there's a lot taking place. You've got foot washings taking place. You've got the Last Supper. You've got a denial. You've got betrayal. Look, and, and it, that's all in just one chapter. And then for a few chapters, if you continue on through John's Gospel in John 14 through 16, uh, you'll see pretty much uh, this last talk, this last heart-pouring-out moment that Jesus has with his disciples. Pretty much this last pep talk. This last uh, this moment with that, that he gets before getting arrested. He's going to talk about how he is the only way. He's going to talk about truth. He's going to talk about how the world will have moments where uh, they're going to hate you as believers. But be reminded, he says, it hated him first. He's going to continue and he's going to ask the disciples for an affirmation point, a belief that pretty much anything and everything they hear, he is trying to tell them and for them to have peace that everything's going to be all right. Now everybody's going to have that song stuck in their head. Then we have the moment in the garden where Jesus is praying. And what a, what a powerful prayer that we find in John chapter 17 that I really encourage this next week that you dig into where Jesus is going to pray for himself. He's going to pray for his disciples. He's going to pray for all of the believers. And then in John 18, all of a sudden, Jesus is arrested in that garden. And then we see Judas betray Jesus. 
pretty much everything from John 13 comes full wrapped in John 18. So where does all that put us? As I said, we're going to backtrack to John 13. God, God wouldn't allow us to move past the passage for whatever reason. Um, but I thought it was very fitting that he laid the, the, the sermon title on my heart today that the table is set. Because when we leave here today, the table is set for Resurrection Sunday. The table is set for Easter week where we're going to give out invitations again. Uh, you get to take an Easter egg and give it to somebody. and You get to maybe pass out some door hangers. And you get to remember all week long maybe as you open up your Bible. And maybe you do devotionals. And you read about Jesus' story of how he did go into this triumphal entry. And all of these, uh, these stories just started happening. And Jesus' crucifixion that happens on Friday. But let's not... Be upset over Friday because Sunday morning's coming. And so in order for us to gain this whole picture here, we've got to understand what happened in John chapter 12. There was this meal with friends. There was this foot washing. It was at the house of Simon. Uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jesus, the disciples were all there. It was before the Passover. It was a house filled with friends. Mary, she took a pound of this very costly, fragrant oil. You'll know this story. This spikenard, that they called it, and, and anointed the feet of Jesus. And, they, and, they, and she began to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. And then when we get to chapter 13, there's so many similarities that we find. There's a meal with friends. There's a foot washing taking place. This time it is not Mary from Bethany. It is Jesus, the master of Nazareth. Mary was anointing Jesus' feet in preparation for the burial of Jesus. He said in chapter 13, Jesus is washing the defeat of the disciples, preparing them for after his burial, after his death, burial, and resurrection. Now let's remember, it is just the disciples in this room. It is a typical Passover meal. We talked about the Passover two weeks ago. It was on this night that Jesus made the elements of the bread and the wine that we use for what is called communion this morning, where we take a piece of bread and a simple cup of grape juice, which is the fruit of the vine. It was at that Passover meal that he makes this be so noteworthy. Now, we have to remember this from the perspective of John. Okay, the first 12 chapters of his gospel, if you read out in, in John, cover the first three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. In chapters 13 through 17, and part of chapter 18, covered the last night of Jesus' life before he would be sentenced and crucified under the reign of Pilate. And so this passage is extremely valuable towards the transaction that Jesus was going to make for the sins of the world. Perhaps at this point, if we look at it, the disciples are asking Jesus, what is this about that this night is compared to all of the other Passovers that we've been a part of? Because this is the thing. We have to understand Jesus is going to hint and he will tell all about how this is going to be his moment that he's going to go to the cross. So we have to think about it. When you think about the Passover, these disciples, this is, I think, I think if, you, if you do some history, this is at least the second time that they've celebrated Passover together. At least. 
possibly the third. So back in this time, the meals were sacred. I don't know if that's the case anymore, but in this time, it was an intimate time, an intimate form of fellowship. I don't know about your home, but in my home, we still eat around the dinner table. Hey, we, we still cook the meal at home. We, we set the table. Riley, Riley always, sometimes Scotty knows Riley, <laughs> will bring the forks and the spoons and all that to the table. She'll set the table together. We'll sit around the dinner table. We'll eat together. We'll put the dishes up. And, 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 and thank God for dishwashers these days. Uh, uh, amen, men. Uh, but, we'll, but we'll put it in the dishwasher or whatever it is. Sometimes we'll hand wash them. But we still had those moments together as a family. But that's what every meal was like back then. That piece is, is so true to me as I was growing up. To be close to someone a lot of times... You break bread together, right? Or, or maybe in today's time, you go, you go get coffee together. The same bread that I eat is the same bread that you eat, and it essentially becomes part of our own, both of our bodies, which is the term makes you feel part of each other. So in this setting, this was a very sacred time together. Here's another piece that we need to understand. At this Passover meal, you linger around. What does that mean? You don't just eat for five minutes and the meal's over. Most of the time, this is one of those moments where you aren't looking at a 20-minute meal. You're looking at probably a two- to three-hour time frame. That's the idea of the Passover meal. This is exactly what Jesus means in Revelation 3 when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He's saying, I will share a level of intimacy with that person who invites me to come in and come close. The world was shut out. And it was Jesus and his disciples in this moment. Imagine it being like the head coach. And he's getting his players together before the big game. It is like the general getting his men together before the big war, before the big battle. The world is outside, and it's just Jesus and his men inside. Now, it's important to note that in this moment, at this moment, Jesus' public ministry is over. In John chapter 12, when they left that home, the public ministry was over. And so now they're in this setting together for the last time. He has nothing more to say to the world at this point. He has a lot that he can say to the disciples. I think this section is so important when, when we read it because we can put ourselves kind of inside that room when we think about it. Really, this happens a few times in Scripture when Jesus is talking. I think about the Sermon on the Mount. Can, can, you, can you just picture yourself on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7? With the crowd there, one of, the, one of those examples, when, when reading that, you can just picture yourself in that moment. In this particular passage this morning, it, it's not public, it's a private setting. So the stage is set, that table is set for raw and truth conversation that is about to take place. Like, if there was a table in this room this morning, like, you can just picture them sitting around this table, enjoying fellowship together. Understanding truth together. 
If you have a Bible with, with red letters of Jesus, you'll notice in chapter 13 through 16, it's a lot of Jesus talking and not much of anybody else talking. Right? The disciples are listening at this point. Now, I, I also think it's important to notice in John chapter 12, verse 37, that after Jesus had done everything else with all the signs and wonders, the public still not, did not believe in Jesus. They still, didn't, they still didn't believe. Like, if I, if I go back and read that to you, but although he had done so many signs before to them, they did not believe in him. After all of those things, so all of those emotions were about to go to the table right there with the disciples. Imagine it. Jesus doing miracle after miracle, doing wonder after wonder, healing after healing, and people still choosing not to believe. They did not believe, therefore they could not believe. The prophet Isaiah even points out that the hearts would become so hard that they would not be able to believe. And that brings me to truth number one this morning. And this this kind of put hit, hit me between the eyes this week. If you are unwilling to believe, if you are unwilling to believe, you may reach a point that you are unable to believe. Another way to put it would be this. If you harden your heart, your heart will be hardened. In other words, you, you may decide, I'm going to harden my heart against the truth of God. Whatever decision you make, that decision can be strengthened. I'll give you an example. God did it with Pharaoh. We talked about Pharaoh and the Egyptians back two weeks ago. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And the Bible says, after that, God hardened his heart. I've had conversation with people that have struggled with that verse. They're like, why would God do that? Well, as I say with anything else, you've got to read the context. And, and it's so important to understand context when you read God's word. You have to read before God hardened his heart. And before that, the Bible is very plain that Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. And if we are unwilling to believe, you could very well come to a place that you are unable to believe. But I also believe that whosoever believes will come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Therefore, if you soften your heart, God can soften it more. God can firm up that decision. If you harden that heart against Him, that can be a very dangerous and slippery slope. But if you ask God to soften your heart, He can do that. In the beginning of chapter 13, as we saw two weeks ago, we see that Jesus is going to teach them. But before He teaches, He touches. He's going to wash their feet, as we saw. That story is so precious. One of, the, one of these chapters of Scripture that, that you really don't need an outline for. Really, you can just read it. It preaches itself. And so I'm not going to reread that whole passage to you. But we know that Jesus would lay aside his garments. He would get his towel. He would wrap it around him and begin to wash the feet of the disciples. He did this to serve. You'll notice through the Gospel of John also that there's this phrase that is going to be used several times that says the hour had not yet come. The hour had not yet come. Well, now, in John chapter 13, verse 1, we read, 
his hour had come. His hour had come. What does that mean? The time was up. It was time for him to get in. It was time for him to go to the cross. The perfect timetable had been set. It was time for him to go to the cross, to die on it for the sins of the world, to glorify the Father, to perfect the plan of the Father. And can I give you a truth this morning that maybe we have forgotten today? God is always on time. I think so often we forget that. I think, I think we want it in our timing, but we forget His timing. Like, in my timing... It's not God's timing. I, I want things like instantaneous sometimes. Like I'll pray something, and within two minutes, I'm like, God, I don't hear you. <laughs> Anybody else like that? Yeah, like, hey, God, I prayed for this yesterday. Where are you at, man? Why aren't you answering it? And I think, I think we just get reminded over and over and over, it's his time, not mine. It's his time, not ours. He's never late. Do you know anyone in your life that is always late? I wasn't going to even call you out, man. You, you, you told on yourself. Moments where you're just like, well, I've got another hour to spare. I'm waiting on Benny. Now that he's done told on himself. That's an earthly person on earthly time. Okay. My heavenly Father is never late. He keeps it right on time. Jesus had looked forward to this moment his whole life. This moment, those around Lazarus, when he had been dead for a few days, they told Jesus he was late. They told the Messiah that he was late. Who were they talking to? Jesus was going to bring a resurrection. He wasn't late. He was on time. Now think about it. In this moment in John 13, Jesus could do anything. He could do anything. He had all of the power he could possibly have had as he sat at this table. And what does Jesus do with the power? He gets on his knees. And he starts washing the feet of the disciples. What a beautiful picture. And as we travel through John 13, as we read a few weeks ago, we saw that he did that mainly because the disciples were sitting there what? They were arguing with each other. They were fighting about who was the greatest. And so Jesus, being who he is, gets up and shows them what servanthood is all about. Let me tell you about one of the greatest needs of the local church. One of the greatest needs of the local church today is that we need to have feet washed. That we serve people that we encourage people, that we need to mature people, that we train people, that we love on people, that we be a forgiving people, that we pray for and that we pray with people, that we would wash their feet. You may not be getting on your hands and your feet physically to wash their feet, but you're washing their feet by serving them. Jesus said in verse John chapter 13, verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Brings me to number two this morning. Truth number two. Get this, in the moments that we want to separate, Jesus wants to intercede. In the moments that we want to separate, Jesus wants to intercede. He, remember, Jesus is fully man, and he's what? 
He's fully God. We, we have to understand that. I know, I know it's mind-blowing. Okay, like we'll, we'll have theology class later with Billy. Uh, I'm going to pass that to you. Uh, when he ascended into heaven, there was, there was a man. And even still today, there is a man that is sitting in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God who is fully man, and his name is Jesus, and he intercedes for you and I. Now, Jesus knows exactly what it is and what it feels like, what pain feels like, and he even, and he even knows what rejection feels like. Think about it. I mean, he spent three and a half years getting rejected. Like, we, we get bent out of shape if we knock on a door and somebody shoves the door in our face. Like, he did it for three and a half years. He would heal somebody, and then they, would, they wouldn't even thank him. He would feed them and clothe them, and they wouldn't even believe in him. We get bent out of shape if nobody would even take our invite card. <laughs> hey, Jesus lived it. Jesus is standing on trial with a man named Barabbas, somebody that was a murderer. Jesus had done nothing wrong. And yet they sent Jesus to the cross instead of Barabbas. The man was rejected his whole life. If there's anybody that knows pain, anybody that knows rejection, it's him. He's looking at the person that's going to deny him three times around this table. He's sitting right next to the person that, that scholars will say that's on his left-hand side. Literally on his left-hand side, the guy that's going to betray him in the garden. He sees one in Thomas that's going to doubt him. And when he intercedes for us, he understands, he relates. Let's look at John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. This is when it starts getting real. Jesus says these words, I do not speak concerning all of you. He pretty much says, look, not all of this pertains to you. But I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his hill against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does, not come, when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he, had, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We believe that would be John. Verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of, the, the son of Simon. Like, he just gave it right to him, like, it's this guy. Like, no playing around. Here it is. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. 
And Jesus said to him, what, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. So we have to understand that at this point, like, this wasn't like a big conversation that must have been having, right? Like, it must have been only between, like, a few of them at this time. Because the Bible plainly says that not, not all of them must have known. Because not in verse, verse 28, no one at the table knew for what reason he said that to them. Verse 29, for some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus has said that to him. Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And then verse 30, having received the piece of bread, he, who being Judas, went out immediately, and it was night. I love how Jesus is a straight horse. <laughs> Peter asked Jesus a question, and Jesus is like, here, I'll tell you. <laughs> I, I love in this passage how John points out that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, uh, good, old, good old John. Isn't it comforting to know that you are a disciple in who Jesus loves? You know, we, we are all disciples in which Jesus loves today. I, I think it's also important. To point out, the other disciple really had no idea what was about to go down the pipe here with Judas. And what Jesus told Judas from my understanding of studying history and, and understanding all of this customary stuff, especially since Judas had the money box here, when, when you had a big Passover meal and you didn't eat all of it, you would take the portion of it that was left and you would go give it to the poor. Like you would give it to the family that was in most need. And so it was part of the Levitical code that if you go back all the way back to the Old Testament, read the book of Leviticus, and, and understand that uh, this Levitical code that you would be kind to the poor of the land. And the Bible tells us, after Jesus says these things and gives this bread, that he would dip it into the wine and give it to Judas. And then Judas would go out into the middle of the night. Let me give you a newsflash really quick. The Last Supper was not this painting that Leonardo da Vinci painted. Right, let's get that picture out of our head today. That is not what it looked like. It's a beautiful painting, don't get me wrong. Beautiful painting. They were not sitting on one side of the table. <laughs> they, were, they were not all looking at the camera at the same time. Um... Beautiful painting he had, okay? I, I love it. It's, it's everywhere. It's plastered everywhere. But that's not what it looked like. They were, uh, they were sitting on chairs. They were actually reclining, the Bible says in John. History says they were reclining at the table on what was called a triclinium. And maybe you've never heard this before. Uh, I actually learned a little bit this week. A triclinium. You have to Google that, find you a picture uh, this was like a three-tiered table. Okay, It was a, a three-section table that would sit about 12 people. It was perfect for their situation that they were in. So imagine a table being here, a table being here, and a table being here. It was kind of like in a U-shape. And, and it was a, a triclinium. It was a three-tiered-looking table. And from the visual that we get, Judas is going to be sitting at the left of Jesus, John, whom the disciple that Jesus loved, evidently, sitting at the right of Jesus. Here's another key fact to the passage. Jesus being the host, this is the thing at this time. 
Jesus would have had to invite Judas here and John here. Because when you go into these moments, into a, a room such as this, and you sit at a triclinium, the host sits at this, and then he handpicks who sits directly beside him. That's what, that's what uh, history tells us. So he would have went to John and said, John, I want you to sit here. And then he would have looked at Judas, knowing that Judas was going to do what Judas was going to do, and said, Judas, I'd love for you to be sitting at my right hand today. The man that was going to betray Jesus. Isn't that powerful? Think about it. It has to mean, in this moment, that Jesus knew exactly what was about to go down the pipe because of the way this triclinium table would have been designed. If you look at the picture, that little piece that would have been easily passed to Judas, and if you read the scripture and you, and you look at the table, like it would, it would make perfect sense. But my question to you this morning as I get to this part of the passage, is where are you leaning at? Are you leaning towards him so that you're close to his heart like John is doing? Or are you inches away or are you leaning away from him? Because the way the triclinium works, Judas would have been leaning this way where John would have been leaning this way. There was only one way to lean on the triclinium table. And the reason why it was set up that way is most people are right-handed. Now, I would have been in trouble on a triclinium because I'm left-handed. They don't make tricliniums for left-handed people, evidently. So if you're left-handed, you're in the same boat I am. Uh, we would have been in trouble. Um, but, but here's the thing. You may be invited in. It may be a place of honor. But where are we leaning? What are we inclining toward? Judas then gets up and leaves. Notice verse 30. What does it say at the end? It was night. To me, that's very significant, being night. It wasn't in John's gospel. If it wasn't in John's gospel, it may not be a big deal. But in his writing, if you look throughout the whole book of John, you're going to see a lot of light and darkness comparisons, a lot of them. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. To lead Jesus' presence, you're getting into dark territory. In those moments that we want to separate, He wants to intercede. And when you walk away from Jesus, when you shut Him out, when you leave His presence, you're heading towards darkness. Let's continue in verse 31. When He had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. He's speaking of the cross here. And then Jesus continues in verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I have said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. But this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You've read that before. This part of the passage goes back to this Greek word kanos, which means renewed. Uh, what I mean by that is Jesus is taking a commandment here that, that we are all familiar with, uh, that we should love one another, but he goes on and he has a new frame to it when he says, you need to love like I love. 
you need to love as I have loved you, that you will have love for one another. He's like, you saw me wash feet, you go wash feet. You saw me serve, you go serve. You saw how I love, you go love. Let's think about this. How did Jesus love? He loved sacrificially. Did he not? He loved unconditionally. Now, let's see. He, he loved us even when we don't love him back. Now, now if you, you're thinking about this logically like I do, I, I think of everything logically. I'm thinking, like, I'm reading this passage, and I'm like, all right, here we go. You're probably saying, there's no way I can do that. There's no possible way I can love like Jesus loved. Because why? We're not perfect. Not one of us in here is perfect. We can try all day long to be perfect. And guess what? The moment that you say that, you messed up. We're not perfect. We set the standard high. My life, I, I set the standard really high for myself, and I, and I shoot myself down a lot because my standard is so high. But that brings me to number three this morning. Love is an action. Love is an action. And as we get ready for Easter next Sunday, we have to be prepared to put the love in action. Can we just be honest this morning? There are times that we just don't feel like loving. You know, we get in our mind, I don't feel like it today. But then inkling inside of us says, do it. I, I remember we were in Spencer. I don't know, we were probably six months into ministry there. I, wanted, I just wanted to go home, y'all. <laughs> I was ready to go home. It had been a long day. I got in my truck. I was driving a, a red Dodge Ram. Y'all might remember that truck. I missed that truck. And, uh, man, I missed that truck. And uh, I got in the truck, and I started pulling out of the parking lot. And I saw a homeless man. I went to the stop sign. There was a stop sign right there beside the concrete pad of the church. And God said, what are you doing? Turn the truck back around. You're asking me to meet people's needs. I'm putting somebody right there in the parking lot, and you ain't even going to meet the need. I'm like, I just want to go home. <laughs> So I get to the stoplight right there in front of the Transportation Museum, and God literally made me turn around. And I turned around, and I met this guy and uh, found out that he was living in the backyard of his daughter's house, which was right down the road from really where Jeff and Dion were. Didn't know Jeff and Dion at that point. And I had some invite cards in my truck and um, started talking to him. And... Um, Started talking to him about church, talking to him about life. Started trying to figure out a need that I could meet. He, he had an alternator out on his van. If he could get his van on the road, he could go get a job. Therefore, he could go get money and hopefully get a place to stay. That was the big thing. He just didn't have money to drive, get a job, whole nine yards, and be able to live. And so... We, we church helped him get an alternator for his vehicle, got the vehicle on the road, ended up getting a job. I don't remember where he got his job, but he got a job, started working. Next thing you know, he starts showing up at church some, um, starts getting involved a little bit. But in that moment, hey, because God said, turn the truck around, next thing you know, I'm meeting neighbors all around that little section of the neighborhood 
And I'm out there for like three and a half hours just, just meeting people, talking to them. When really in our moment, we're saying, I just want to go home. I don't have time for this. You see how things work sometimes? Like we get in our mind, I don't have time. No, God says, you need to make time. He's like, what if I didn't have time to go to the cross for you? What if I didn't want to make time to go to the cross to die for the sins of you? But he did. And so he's like, this inkling inside us sometimes that says, go do it. And sometimes God just tells us, get over yourself. Go get the towel and go serve somebody. And some may say, but it's not real if I don't feel it. It is. The last time I checked, it's called obedience. And we may not be happy at first, but I've never seen anybody that has served, and at the end of the day, they don't feel blessed. It's a new commandment, Jesus says. You should love as I love, Jesus says. Did you know that we have an infinite capacity to go love? How do I know this? Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 tells us that we have love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom God has given us. What does that mean? It means when we run out, He's got more to pour in. I love that. Aren't, aren't we thankful this morning that we serve a God that His love never runs out on us? So if we serve like Christ loves us, why should our love run out on somebody else? I don't have enough. That's what we say all the time. I don't have enough in my tank. Listen, there's some Sunday mornings that I get here and I'm like, God, I don't have enough in my tank, but I know you can fill me up today. Just pour into me. Christ, pour into us, which means inside our circle, there should be no one that should ever feel love starved. It is transformed for you and for me. So let's finish up this chapter really quick. I'm almost done. John 13, 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Oh, religious Peter. Always having to be religious. Always being the one, Oh, Lord, I'll do this for you. Peter does it all the time. Jesus answered him and said, Will you, lay down my, will you lay down your life for my sake? He says this, Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you deny me three times. Chapter 9. So Peter's like, look, I'll lay down my life for you. Man, you're about to deny me. <laughs> Once again, Jesus just being the real man that he is, I want to say this and I'll close. Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail him. Did you know in the moments that we fail him, that he's not shocked? There's nothing in this world that shocks God. When we mess up, God isn't sitting back and saying, I can't believe he did that. But he also knows there's a restoration period. If you think about it, in this moment, when Peter goes out and denies Jesus, there's no telling the guilt that Peter's going to end up having. 
all of the weight that Peter's going to have on his shoulders. But I go back to after, after Jesus has died on the cross, Jesus reappears to the disciples. What happens? The disciples are out there on the, on the sea again. They're out there fishing. And there's a little voice behind them. They're like, hey, you're, you're not fishing in the right spot again, boys. You're throwing your line in the wrong spot. And it's Jesus. And him and Peter are going to have a, have a situation beside the sea. And Jesus is going to have this conversation with Peter. And he's going to ask him on three separate occasions, Peter, do you love me? Go feed my sheep. And Jesus is going to restore Peter. In the same way that Jesus restores Peter is the same way that Jesus restores us. In the same way that maybe today, maybe today you need restoration in your life. Maybe today you've messed up, but you've never come to the altar and given it to Him. You've never come and said, God, I need forgiveness. I need restoration. Maybe it's not your salvation moment. Maybe you know Jesus. But you haven't been able to let go of that one moment. Maybe that's you today. Maybe today you are here and you, you, you don't know Jesus. And you're like, oh, I need Jesus Christ in my heart. We're getting ready for... A big baptism Sunday on April the 16th, and I'm praying to God that we can fill that tank. And we'll have people to baptize that Sunday morning. I really am. And I'm praying for God to send people our way next Sunday that don't know Jesus. The salvation will take place in their life. But maybe today in this room, there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And today needs to be the day that you give your life to Him. In this invitational time, as our worship team comes, maybe today's the day you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe today's the day that you need to come seek God at this altar and seek restoration in your life. I heard it said this week, don't let your failure be your undertaker. Let it be your teacher, but don't stop there. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to cleanse you. If you've truly given your life to Jesus, take it in full confidence that you have been saved, but you still need to be humbled and have your feet washed. And maybe today we need to have our feet washed and we need to serve like we've never served before. Across Life Church, I'm asking you this week to be the hands and feet. Whatever that looks like in your context, in your life, and in your family's life, go be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're about to sing a song, Just As I Am. And I promise you that Jesus Christ wants us just as we are dirty, filthy rags. He wants us just as we are. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for John chapter 13, just a reminder. Lord, we need to have our feet washed. And we need to be washing others' feet. Lord, today I, I pray that in this moment, if there is one person in this place that has never trusted you as Lord and Savior of their life, God, that you would open up their heart right now.
that they would feel the love of you for the very first time. That they would feel your spirit moving in them, God. That it would literally pick them out of their seat and bring them here down here at the altar. Lord, I pray for next Sunday morning as we celebrate the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, together. What a joyous occasion it's going to be. But Lord, right now in this moment, I don't believe you're done. You want us just as we are. God, I pray you just fill up the altar right now with people needing to seek forgiveness. Whatever it is they're holding on to, God, as we get into this holy week, God, that we would start this week clean, cleansed and Lord, that we would start it looking towards a holy God who sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross in our place as a sacrifice for our sin. It should have been us that was nailed to that cross, but instead you sent Him so that we could have peace, that we could have everlasting life. Lord, in this moment, let us be, let this be a reminder of who you are and who you want us to be, who you want this church to be. Have your will and have your way during this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand with us just as I am. You come if you need to come today. Come pray if you need to pray. Come talk to us if you need to come.